If you do not love, you will not know God. And there is intuition at play here. Romantic love, parental love, love and friendship, love of nature. Many times when we encounter love, we, we presuppose that there is something, something larger. There's a transcendent quality to love. There's something that rises above our own perspective to give meaning to our experiences. You know, our romantic and sexual account encounters, when we stand at the foot of a mountain, and when we, when we hold a newborn child, or, or even attend the funeral of a dear friend, the depth of love comes, starts to come into view, but it seems to be a horizon that is out of our reach. We experience this because the quality of our love in many ways feels incomplete or imperfect. How many of us have felt that our love of, ch- of, of our children or our spouse or our friend is, is lacking, that it could be better? We feel that we are participating in something bigger than ourselves that we cannot quite deliver on. Here, John, the Apostle John, is relating something similar. Divine love or transcendent love is said to reach fullness in the act of God sending Christ as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The death of Christ is the centerpiece of what Christians believe is God's perfect demonstration of love. However, when we consider that demonstration, we are confronted with the overwhelming reality that Christ's death is in part a response to our selfishness. We therefore have a problem. We are told that we must love to know God but also that we do not love God. How then do we become a child of God? When we see the cross, when we see the love of God demonstrated in his sacrifice, in his his death, we are unable to love like that. We recognize that not one of us is capable of loving God to the extent that he loves us. Of course, the solution is the old solution of grace of amazing grace. And I'm going to apologize in advance that I'm going to lean on some voices in this message that don't typically come from our tradition. But the theme of of childlike love is something quite beautifully picked up by a famous theologian named Balthazar. And in a little book called Love Alone is Credible, he writes this, Just as no child can be awakened to love without being loved, so too no human heart can come to an understanding of God without the free gift of his grace in the image of his son. Now, Balthazar is talking about how we we are awakened to God's love through the cross. At the cross, we are presented with real love, a love that sinful human love desires and anticipates a love in which we are, we are wanting to be loved by a gracious God. And the cross shows us that we are loved by a gracious God. And this is because God is love. And everything that God does, therefore, is an expression of his love. You may not know, but here we actually have a theological choice to make. And as a, as a theologian, I like, I like making theological choices. Is God's nature love plus something else? 
Or is his nature pure love with everything else expressing that love? And we'll take holiness as an example. And we're going to get a little bit technical here, and I I do apologize. Uh, But please do try to stay with me because I I, I promise I'm going to make a point. But if we say that God's essence is pure holiness, as in the noun, not the adjective, we are saying that God's essence, who he is, depends on something other than God himself. And why do I say that? Holiness means separate. It means set apart. God is holy because he alone is the creator and he is distinct from all creation. He is not a creature. We see a a glimpse of this in Isaiah 6, uh, verse 3, when Isaiah has an encounter with God and he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God's holiness for Isaiah was that God was was set apart and he was grander, he was larger than even the entire earth. And we can continue on. Although God is just, his essence, his nature, his, his pure nature is not justice. Why do I say that? To judge requires something or someone to judge over. God is not anger in his essence, although he gets angry. God's anger is aroused for a time in response to human sin. So the theological choice that we, that we make, the answers that we, we seek when we talk about God's essence, must describe God as he is from time eternal. There must always be, and this has always been the contention of Christians throughout history, a distance that separates creation from the creator. And this is important. God is not set apart from himself. He does not judge himself, and he is not angry with himself. However, God is love. And Christians have thought about this for a long time, and they have thought about God in terms of Trinity, that there is love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this requires no creation for love to be realized within God. The point I'm trying to make is this. God expresses his love through holiness, mercy, justice, sovereignty, and even anger. This is actually a very radical claim of Christianity. While many theological outlooks, Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, and other, uh, other theological outlooks claim that God is loving, Christianity claims that God is love. Remarkably, our text says that God's love can be brought to full expression in us when we love each other. Because God's love His essence requires, he desires an object for love and a direction of that love. God's love within the Trinity and God's love within creation is the object and direction of his love. The point is that this is actually important as we're going to read the next section. And so hopefully you were able to to stay with me as I use the word love like, I don't know, 30 times. (laughs) let's go to verse 17 and as we live in God our love grows more perfect 
So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he, lived, he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. There's a part in verse 17, and, if, and if, this, if this verse is bothering you, if you are troubled by the idea of a day of judgment in connection with a God who is love, can I just tell you that you're in actually pretty good company? Christian thinkers throughout history have really struggled to think about judgment in the context of a God who is love. And if you aren't bothered by the idea of judgment, Maybe I can say that you should be bothered by it. There is a tension between love and judgment, and that tension is intentional. From our perspective, judgment confirms that not all is well in the world, and it implies pain and consequences. But as we've said, and this is the, this is the important truth, that everything that God does must be an expression of his essence, which is love, and therefore, that includes judgment. I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, this question about judgment and love. And I'm going to admit that uh, the way I think about it is, is, is very imperfect and incomplete. But we read that God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So the question that I have is, what does it mean to live in God, and what does it mean to not live in God? I've found it helpful to think of God's love and judgment using this analogy, the experience of telling someone you love them. There is a big risk in telling someone that you love them. You always take a chance that your love will be rejected. It is an incredibly painful experience to be rejected. Parents who have their love rejected by their children and vice versa know that pain very well. People who in their vulnerability take a, take a moment to admit to their best friend that they are in love with them and not receive the answer they had hoped for. That is a painful experience. But here's the thing about love. That sometimes loving someone means not pursuing them when they reject you. Love does not manipulate or it does not force itself upon someone else who does not want it. We all know this. This is a giant relationship red flag when someone says, if you love me, you will do this, and they use love to manipulate, to control. And I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but if human love expects that we respect the choice of those who reject us, how much more do you think God respects our choice when we reject him? In trying to sort out these types of questions, C.S. Lewis once wrote in The Problem of Pain, describing under those, 
under judgment, that they were in one sense successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Because God is not a God of coercion. He will not force anyone to live in love with him and have himself live in them. He will not scare anyone or manipulate anyone into having a relationship with him. That is not God's nature. And that is not what it was on display on the cross. It was love on the cross and not fear. And fear is not driven out with fear, but love. It seems so obvious, but for some reason it is hard for us to figure out. I, I, I speak for myself, um, but I, 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 I also know there is a growing frustration among many of us in the church with how the church has been peddling fear to an already anxious world during this pandemic. When the world needs to hear and know of the love of God more than ever, Christians are online spreading hateful things or shadowy conspiracy theories or reigniting supposed culture wars and falling prey to extremist views. I never thought that I would say a paragraph like, a paragraph like that in any message that I would ever preach. But this is 2020 after all. Listen, I'm not going to get into it here very much. But only to say that when the church is peddling in fear, fear of evil spirits, fear of hell, or fear of culture, fear of neighbor, of politics, or whatever else that is not new under the sun, the message of love, God's love tends to get lost. Because fear is a powerful manipulator. It has the potential to paralyze us and prevent us from living out our mission to love God and love others. To combat fear, according to John, is to love each other because he loved us first. Many in church history have tended to default to the belief that disruptive world events are a sign of God's punishment and the church has always had to deal with that. You can see the City of God by Augustine or Julian of Norwich's uh, Revelations of Divine Love through the Black Plague as examples of that. This is not a new problem. But sometimes everything will boil down to one simple question. The question that Jesus asked Peter in his post-resurrection appearance. That question is, do we love Jesus? Now, for a God who is love, the answer to this question has profound meaning. Jesus' response to Peter was simple. Feed my lambs, tend and feed my sheep, and follow me. As I mentioned, the concept of a child is used throughout not just this letter, but throughout the New Testament to describe faith. I, I wondered as I was reading, how would my children respond to me if I was able to tell them not only that I love them, but that I am love? Would they be afraid? Or would they follow me and trust me? None of us are able to say that to our children, but the one who can, Jesus Christ, invites us to follow him. 
John doesn't spend a lot of time on fear, and he focuses away to the sincere love of God and a fellow believer. And what we are saying, that if we hate a fellow Christian, is that God lovingly sent Jesus as a sacrifice for us, all of us except the person whom we hate. The tangible object of God's divine love at work through us are the people around us. God's love has the potential to tear down the barriers that we have built up to keep others out. Fear, on the other hand, causes us to act in divisive ways. You know, I've asked you in life group to talk about these ways in which we allow fear to put up barriers between us and others. And I'm only going to address one here briefly. And it's something that I think is a very sad commentary on the church. Fairly or unfairly, the suffix phobia is used to describe the church's relationship with certain groups and their respective identities. That is never an easy thing to hear. And I, in my own life and in the life of those around me, often experience a defensive posture when we hear those words. But I also know that this description reflects a genuine experience for those who have encountered a fearful Christianity. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is building his church and we do not need to fear the gates of hell? Or do we feel threatened and go on the offensive, not against evil or injustice or loneliness or isolation, but are we taking the offensive against the very people we are called to sacrificially love. And yes, I am aware that in this passage, the term believer is used to describe the expression of that love. But if we accept and testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, then we are called to show divine love to all. I warned you about some of the people I was going to use in this message. And one of them is the Catholic activist and journalist Dorothy Day. And when I've seen this quote, it has stopped me dead in my tracks, and it is this. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Now, I need to make something clear that I'm not suggesting that you remain in an abusive or harmful relationship we live in a very broken world, and God is very much concerned with your health and well-being. But we can always make choices that reflect a God who is love and is at work with us. We can be angered by injustice because God is angered because he is love. We can refuse revenge and make it not an option for us because God is love. And we can bestow forgiveness because God is love, and God is in us and working through us. Well, I've given you some things to work through in Life Group, and I hope that you have some good discussions. I'm always here if you want to talk about things, if you have questions, or um, you know, send me an email, and I'll, and I'll do my best to reply. And if you want to talk to me about anything, um, I do want to make myself available to, to my community here at Village Green because I really do love this community. And I've been here now for three years, and I really feel privileged to be a part of a group of people 
that make me and my family feel loved. A group of people that I can be open and honest with and that we can discuss in life group questions and raise things and wrestle through things together. You know, when I was considering coming here, the fact that the mission statement of this church was love God and love others made me know that I was going to make this place home very quickly. And this has been difficult. This has been hard. This year has had challenges. But let's just keep committing to love each other. Let's just keep committing to be there for each other, to forgive each other, and to make Village Green a community where the love of God shines in this dark and fearful world. Let's just take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that your love is never-ending. It is without fail, and it is always there. And you ask us, God, or Lord Jesus Christ, our God, that if, if we love you, our task is simple. We are to care for one another and to follow you. Would we just continue to live out the mission that we believe you have put us on? A mission to love the world, to love God, and see that love change this world. I pray for those right now who are fearful, who are fearful of you, of fearful of God when they think of God and who he is. Would they be able to see your wonderful love as they think about the cross, the sacrifice that you made for us? I pray that they would no longer be afraid, that they would just be overwhelmed by your love and that they would call out to you as a child of God. I thank you for this church. I thank you for those in it. I thank you for the love that is at work through Village Green. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.